Who or what do you think we can count on in, in, in this world? Who can we really trust? It seems to me, and I, I think probably the sort of surveys and stuff back, back this up, that we're, we're probably becoming a more distrustful nation. Do, do you think? It seems to me we are. Uh, we're, we're kind of more cynical about who we can trust than, than maybe we used to be. Politicians, can we trust politicians? Banks, can we trust banks? Or pension funds? Friends, can we trust friends? Spouses, can we trust spouses? Who is true to their word these days? Who can you have absolute trust in? Is, is there anybody in, in today's world that we could say could be, could be trusted absolutely? Um, well, of course, the Bible says there is. We can trust God absolutely. Um, now, of course, we, we, uh, we might be tempted to think at this point, well, maybe other people can trust God, uh, but can I trust him? Can, can I trust him to be there for me? Absolutely. Uh, what, what if I've made mistakes in my life? Uh, what if I've spent my whole life running away from God? What if I've let God down? Could he still be there for me? Could, could I still trust him? And, and, and how can I know? Um, uh, hopefully that's what we're going to see this morning here in, in Genesis 17. We've, we've been doing this little series um, in, in chapters 12 to 25 uh, of, of Genesis, following the life of, of one man, this man Abram, um, soon to be renamed Abraham, which is a bit of a pain really because it's taken me ages to get used to calling him Abram and not Abraham and now it's going to change back again but there we are so here we get on um you can notice how many times i say abram instead of abraham or the other way around this morning it's probably going to be lots um but but if you've been following this this little series you've probably noticed that that it's not so much the man abram that is the focus of these chapters is it but rather it's it's the promise of god that is central isn't it that that threefold promise if you remember of people and land and blessing that god first gave to abram back in chapter 12 and and that god has been constantly reiterating and and expanding upon hasn't he in 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 12 to 17 uh, uh, but that but that we've seen is is actually a gospel promise in other words it's a promise that's way bigger than being simply about the, the nation of Israel or the land of Canaan and, and so on. It's actually a promise that the rest of the Bible unpacks, a promise that finds its fulfillment through Christ in the New Testament, where, where we see God building a new people, a people from every nation, Jew and Gentile, um, that, that he will bring to a new home, an, an eternal new creation, and, and that he will bring back under his rule to enjoy his blessing through the salvation that Jesus will come to bring. So, so these chapters that we've, we've looked at in this series are kind of key chapters, aren't they? Because the, the big narrative of the whole Bible really unfolds out of this threefold promise in, in these chapters. The, the rest of the Bible, if you like, is the explanation of the promise uh, of these chapters. So it's vital for us, isn't it, that we understand how Abram responds to the promise of God so that we can see how we are to respond as well. Because uh, these, these chapters, they don't just explain what God's doing back then in, in the Old Testament, in the Bible. It explains what God is doing in the universe. It explains what God's doing in history. 
And, and what we see here in, in the life of, of uh, Abram is that the way to respond to the promise of God is to trust him. God makes this threefold promise and then he calls Abram to trust him to fulfill what he promises. Now, of course, we've seen trusting in God's promises. It's been a bit of a kind of roller coaster ride for Abram, isn't it? Sometimes he's been good at, at, at trusting God to fulfill his promise. Other times things have gone horribly wrong. Um, and as he's sort of taken matters into his own hands, uh, instead, we saw that last week, didn't we, in chapter 16, in, in order for God to fulfill his promise, he needed to give Abram a son. And, and after years of waiting, it, it still wasn't happening. So Abram took matters into his own hands uh, by, by agreeing to sleep with his wife's servant. Uh, and, and so produce a son, Ishmael, uh, by his rules rather than by God's rules. Except that Ishmael wasn't the son of the promise. Indeed, he turns out to be a source of much pain to Abram and his, his descendants as the, the, the centuries roll by. So Abram really blew it last time, didn't he, in the last chapter. What, what a mess he made of, of trusting God. But, but does that mean that God's promises are kind of now in tatters? You know, that he's going to have to pick uh, some new way? In, in order to bless the world and, and, and bring about the, the promised rescuer of humanity? Well, no. <laughs> because although Abram has certainly messed up, yet God has not abandoned his promises. He can still be trusted. And, and this is because the promise of God is not dependent on human performance. It's not dependent on us being able to keep our part of the bargain. It's dependent upon God's ability to keep his part of the bargain. So let's have a look uh, in these verses at what it means to trust in God's promise. I've got kind of three one-word headings for us to try and loosely take us through the chapter. And, and the first heading, verses 1 to 8, is all about promise. It's all about promise. So have a look at verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, and the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, Walk before me and be blameless. So as we, as we pick up the story, Abram's now 99 years old. So, so actually that's 13 years after the birth of Ishmael at the end of the last chapter. So there's a gap. And, and the narrator kind of draws attention to Abram's age here so that we will know that humanly speaking, this guy is beyond the age when he would be able to father a, a child. So he's had the promise of chapter 12. He's had the various reiterations of the promise in the following chapters, but he's still not got the son of the promise. And now he's 99. He's, you know, he's only a month away from getting a telegram from the queen. <laughs> but but what, does God, what does God say to him? Verse 1, I am God Almighty. The Hebrew word there you might recognize is El Shaddai. It's the, it's the name for God that the Bible uses when it wants to convey his, his power. To, to convey beyond all doubt that he is, he is all-sufficient and all-powerful and that nothing is, is too difficult for him. Um, we used to use, I'm not sure whether we use this phrase quite so much now, but we used to use that phrase, uh, that's my middle name. Do you, do you remember that? So I might say to Ollie, in fact I say this to Ollie quite a lot when I'm feeling technically challenged, which is frankly most of the time, Ollie, can you help me fix this little tech issue? And, and, and Ollie might, might reply, I mean, he, he might think of another solution, but he, he might reply, fixing Steve's tech issues? That's my middle name. In other words, that's who I am. Just call me Mr. Tech Fix. I am totally able to do that. 
And that, that's, that's kind of what God's saying here. Almighty, totally sufficient, all-powerful, that's my middle name. That's who I am. I'm El Shaddai. Nothing's impossible for me. And, and, and so, verse 1, because of who I am, walk before me and be blameless. In other words, I'm almighty God, so keep trusting Abram. Walk, walk, walk my way and not your way. And, and let your trust in my promise be evidenced in your obedience. Do you see? Remember who it is who has made this promise to you, Abram. It's me. It's El Shaddai. It's, it's God Almighty. So trust me. Trust me. So there's, a, there's a kind of a fresh call here, isn't there, for Abram to, to trust God. But, but then look at what he does uh, in verse 2. That I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Do you see? He, he restates the promise again. Only this time he calls it a covenant. So we, we saw a little bit, didn't we, about covenants the other week in, in chapter 15, didn't we? How a covenant was like a, a formal way of making a promise and, and establishing a, a relationship. It was usually between two parties. Often in those days it was between two kings uh, or, or two nations. So, so for example, there might be a, like a big powerful nation uh, who, who might go to war with a smaller nation, and then when the battle had been won, uh, a covenant would be agreed, wh- whereby the, the smaller losing nation would be promised protection from the, the powerful, you know, victorious nation in return for its loyalty and, and its obedience. In, in other words, the, the losing nation would face a kind of a, a choice. You know, you, you could either enter the covenant and have the benefits of protection, or you could refuse the covenant and remain on your own, but face the real prospect of being wiped out. <laughs> In other words, a covenant establishes a relationship on the basis of certain promises. Which, of course, makes it a relationship of trust, doesn't it? The relationship only works when each party keeps its side of the bargain. So, for example, Christian marriage is a covenant, when you go to a wedding, uh, got one here next week. When you go to a wedding, you, you witness two parties who make a formal agreement which establishes a relationship. They consent to the marriage, they exchange promises or vows, you know, what each party will do. I, so and so, take you, whoever, to be my wife. Forsaking all others, I will be faithful to you from this day forward, for, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, till death us do part, and, and so on. In other words, promises are made, which are then entered into formally as they disappear into a little vestry somewhere, and they sign a formal agreement uh, with each other, but in front of witnesses. It's a form of covenant. And of course, in the case of marriage, it's a covenant which has a sign attached to it doesn't it? The, the exchanging of, of rings. Now, of course, the rings don't establish the covenant. The, the marriage does that. The promises and the contract do that. But the rings signify that the relationship exists. In, in other words, a, a covenant is a kind of culturally established way of formalizing a relationship by laying out the requirements, the, the undertakings, the obligations of that relationship. It's a covenant. And it's, it's, friends, I think it's worth saying as, as we pass by that illustration that, that recognizing marriage as a covenant, I, I think, is something that as Christians we need to not let go of as, as God's people. 
Because that is not how society around us sees marriage anymore, is it? Uh, you, you know, the way our culture uh, talks about marriage doesn't reflect the fact that it's a covenant. You know, we talk about the institution of marriage, don't we? Or we, we talk about the breakdown of marriage, or we talk about the failure of marriage. Indeed, we talk about people uh, uh, choosing not to get married because of the likelihood of the marriage failing. And I think we use that kind of language because it somehow implies that the reason for, for many marriages ending is because there is some deficiency in marriage itself. You know, like it's something that can't really be expected to work in, in this day and age. But friends, marriage is not simply an institution. Marriages don't end because there is some deficiency in marriage, certainly not in the Bible's definition of marriage. No, Christian marriage is a covenant and marriages end because the parties involved in the covenant break their promises. They renege on what they agree to. They're unfaithful to their vows. That's why marriages end. So it's not the covenant that is to blame. It's the parties to the covenant that are to blame. Marriages don't fail. There's nothing deficient about the marriage covenant itself. It's the people who are parties to the covenant who fail. They fail to be faithful to what they promised. And and I think that's a point worth making, friends, because you can see the similarities between this covenant here and and a marriage covenant, I think. So so verse 4 says, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be. And and then God outlines what he will do. Uh, And then in verse 9, he says, As for you, and then he outlines what? Abram will do. So, so this is two parties making an agreement and laying out what each will do. It's a, it's a covenant. It's like marriage. So what is God going to do in the covenant? Well, it's a restatement of the promise, isn't it? Only this time he's kind of expanding on it even more. Have a look at verses 5 and 6. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. So he's he's changing Abram's name, but notice that that in changing his name, he's reiterating his promise, isn't he? The name Abram means father, uh, but, you know, Ishmael aside, he's had no kids, he's just had a promise. But now God's changing his name to Abraham, which means father of a multitude. So he's he's changing his name to reflect how fruitful God is going to make him. Verse 5, I've made you a father of a multitude of nations. And verse 6, I will make you exceedingly fruitful and and make you into nations. Do do, do you see? And and God is insistent that he will do this. And and he he fills in some more of the the details of the the covenant. Verse uh, 7. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you, to your offspring after you, the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. So there's there's some new information actually come here. Hasn't there? This is going to be an everlasting covenant, verse 7. It's, it's going to be something handed down from one generation to the next, verse 8. So, so every time God restates his promise, his plan, it just, it just gets bigger, 
doesn't it? And in fact, that happens, of course, all the way through the Bible. That the plan of God to, to put right what sin has messed up, which started with the, the threefold promise to Abram back in chapter 12, is actually a global plan that gets fleshed out in, in more and more and more detail as the storyline of the Bible unfolds. But what's at the heart of the covenant is, is kind of summarized at the end of verse 8. And I will be their God. That, that, and that's the heart of the covenant because this is what God is doing in the world, isn't it? He's building a people for himself, a people to be with him for eternity, a people who will worship him as God. This is the, this is the plan of the whole Bible, for God to be God to his people. And, and it's a massive plan. It's a global plan, as, as his people are drawn from, from every nation on earth. And, and this covenant with Abraham here is a covenant to, to serve that plan. So that's God's part in the covenant. This is his marriage vow, his promise, what he will do. He will have a people that he will be God to in eternity. I will be their God. But what about Abram's part in the the covenant? You know, God God has committed himself unconditionally to be God to Abram and his descendants forever. It's massive, it's global, it's eternal. But what about Abram? What's, What's his part in all this? Well, that's where we move from promise to sign. Look, in verses 9 to 14. Have a look at verse 9 with me. Um, And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you, throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep, between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. Now, I I realize that... uh, Abraham's part in the covenant is going to seem like a, probably a bit of a bigger deal to the men than the ladies here. Um, <laughs> but it's, uh, even so, it's, it's a pretty one-sided covenant, actually, isn't it? It's, it's one massive promise from God and just one small snip for Abraham. <laughs> um, now, of course, half of us are probably thinking that's not a snip I'd want without a general anesthetic. Um, but, you know, joking aside, there is a huge contrast, isn't there, between God's part in the covenant and, and Abraham's, isn't there? God has just made massive commitments to Abraham with global and eternal consequences, while all Abraham has to do, and, and those after him, is, is to have a, a small snip. It's a bit painful, but not what we might expect. What we might expect... Is, is God saying that he will be their God, but then what you must do is keep all these rules or do all this stuff or follow this religion or whatever, and then I will be your God. But he doesn't say that, does he? At this point, he's simply saying, every male among you shall be circumcised. So, so what's all that about then? Well, have a look at verse 11. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Do you, do you see? So circumcision then is a, is a sign. It's a badge, if you like. It, it marks out someone as one of God's people, someone with whom God has made a covenant. In other words, it's like the, the married person wearing a ring, if you like. Wearing a ring doesn't, doesn't make you married, but it's the sign that you are married. That, that you've covenanted to this person, that it's, a, it's an agreement that's, that's based on certain promises. 
And in the same way, circumcision didn't make you one of God's people, but it was the sign that you were in a covenant with God. He'd made certain promises to you and and that you were therefore set apart for obedience to him as one of his uh, chosen, recognized, holy people. And and this is what we see actually in the rest of the Old Testament, isn't it? So, So the laws that came later through Moses at Mount Sinai, they weren't preconditions for God to be their God. God wasn't saying to them, you must obey my law, and if you do it well enough, I will be your God. No, the law was to those who were already the circumcised people of God, those already in a covenant relationship with him, to to show them how to live as those who were his covenant people already. Do you see? So yes, there there are commands for for God's people. There are ways in which God expects us to, to live and behave as his people. But they're not rules to obey in order to be his people. They're laws that reflect the right way of living for those who are already his people. Do you see? Circumcision comes before the law. God promises to be God to his people first, and and it's irrevocable. And only then does he show them the way to live as God's people. But of course, the two things need to go together, don't they? The sign and the reality, the the life. To to be marked out as one of God's people means to live as, as God's people. Of course, later in the Old Testament, actually, Israel would come to mistakenly think that the sign was actually the reality itself. As long as I'm circumcised, well, this makes me one of God's people. And and God actually had to tell them that was not so. You need to circumcise your heart, too. Your, Your way of living needs to be consistent with your circumcision. The sign is not the reality. And I think we see people making the same mistake today. Don't we? With what I would say is the new covenant sign of of baptism. People either want to have their child baptized or themselves baptized sometimes, not because they want to be marked out as the covenant people of God, but because they think this is how to make sure that they're going to be made right with God. But friends, the sign is not the reality. The sign on the outside needs to be evidenced by the reality on the inside, that the reality of 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 a life that's lived in consistency with being God's covenant people. So so the two things must go together, but it's the covenant that comes first. How we live for God is always about a response to what God has done first. It's never about trying to earn our way to him doing something for us. But but notice uh, also here, there are no exceptions, no, no choice really in the matter. Verse 13, this is to cover everyone, Um, both he who is born in your house and he who is born with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He's broken my covenant. Do do you see? No no exceptions. From, From here on in, every one of Abram's male offspring will carry this sign that they are the recipients of the promise of God and must now live accordingly. So we've seen what God will do, this this massive global covenant promise, and we've seen what Abraham and his descendants must do, and it's this small sign of the covenant that they must carry. But what about us? 
I mean, we don't do this today, do we? It's probably a relief to many of us. Um, but, but why not? Um, well, I hope our final heading will help us. Verses 15 to 26, we move from promise to sign to what I've termed salvation as our third heading. And, and what happens here is that God finally addresses the problem that's been plaguing Abraham all the way through these these chapters. The problem that caused him to doubt God's promise, try and take matters into his own hands, namely the absence of a son. So just look at what God promises. Verse 15. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Uh, And then look how Abram responds in verse 17. Then Abram fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? It is a staggering thing for God to say, isn't it? You know, Abram, I'm I'm 100 years old, my wife's 90. You know, it sounds unbelievable, doesn't it? I I don't really think Abram is sure that God will do it. (laughs) He says in verse 18, for example, Oh, that Ishmael may live before me. You know, oh, that he was the one to be blessed. But but actually, God is is insistent, isn't he? Uh, Verse 19, uh, God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son. And you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. In other words, it's through Isaac that God will fulfill his promise. Yes, there'll be blessing for Ishmael as well, verse 20. But, verse verse 21, I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you this time next year. Do you see, God is emphatic that he will do it and it will be through Isaac. And look at verse 22, when he'd finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. In other words, God has got nothing more to say, and so he goes. It will be as he has said. That's that's incredible, isn't it? Um, We we saw last week that it was 10 years between when Abram arrived in Canaan and when Sarai thought about a solution herself through, through Hagar. And we see here in verse 25 that now Ishmael is 13 years old. So that's 23 years since God first made the promise to Abram. 23 years of, of wondering how on earth God was going to build a nation from a couple who couldn't have children. You, you've got to feel for them, haven't you? What a long wait that was. But what has God been teaching him through this this long, seemingly interminable wait? What is it that the narrator wants us to see Abraham learning so that we will learn it too? Let me suggest a few takeaways for us. Firstly, I think that what God is teaching Abraham and, and us is that God's promise... And the kingdom that God is building can only come about in God's way. God's kingdom is not a man-made kingdom. It's going to come about as God acts in his way and in his time and in accordance with his plan, which, of course, is the salvation plan, the rescue plan that unfolds from these promises as the, as the Bible progresses. 
And, and this rescue plan that we are to look out for uh, as the Bible unfolds from here on in, well, it comes through a son, doesn't it, who is to come into the world. Do, do, do you remember how the, the promise to Abraham back in chapter 12 was that his descendants would come to be a great nation and one of blessing for the whole world? Do you remember that? Well, sure enough, Abraham's descendants do become a great nation. Soon Isaac is born. So, so, so maybe he will be this promised blessing to the world? Well, no, he turns out to be a bit of a wimp, actually, doesn't he? Um, of course, he has children. Uh, so his son Jacob inherits the promise. Maybe Jacob's the one. Will, will he bring uh, God's blessing to the nations? Well, no, it's not him either, is it? He turns out to be a liar. He cheats his brother out of his birthright. He does have quite a number of kids, of course, 12 sons. In all, they become kind of the patriarchs of Israel. Could one of them be the one? Well, no, they're kind of guys that sell their brother because they're jealous of his, his designer jacket. Um, who, who, who is this one going to be? Who's going to bring blessing to the world? Because as the Old Testament unfolds, it, it just gets worse and worse, doesn't it? God saves his people and delivers them from, from Egypt, but no sooner have they been saved than they start moaning at him. They fail to, to trust him for, for one thing after another. They make a statue to worship instead of him. They, they refuse to, to trust him to defeat their enemies and, and, and take the land that God had promised to them. It just gets worse and worse. And, and even when they do get to the promised land of Canaan, it's not long before they descend into, into debauchery and into depravity until God disowns them. And says they're as bad as the uncircumcised nations around them. Of course, later on, a king comes. Indeed, we're told a man after God's own heart. He's finally leading the nation. Maybe he could be the one who will bring blessing to the nations. But no. King David ends up killing an innocent man because he's committed adultery with his wife. So we realize that he's just like all the others. And, and so it goes on, doesn't it? For, for generation after generation. So, so where is this blessing for the nations going to come from? Well, as we continue through the Bible narrative, what we see is that this blessing for the nations does not come from the multitude of Abraham's offspring. It comes from just one of them. Uh, Paul puts it in... Uh, i put it up on the slide. Here's how Paul puts it in Galatians 3, 16. The promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, which is Christ, Paul says. In other words, the ultimate fulfillment of these promises to Abraham comes not through the many offspring, but through just one of them, through Christ. He is the true son of Abraham who will bring God's promised blessings to the nations. He's the one. He's the one we've been waiting for, the one the Bible has been pointing us to, the one through whom all God's blessings and promises become a reality. And, and how will he do that? He'll do it as he goes to the cross and pays with his own blood for that rejection of God that caused us to be cast out of his kingdom in the first place. He'll do it through his great rescue plan, that brings forgiveness of sins, the true circumcision of the heart. So that God's people can enter his kingdom and God can be their God forever. 
So who are these people? Here's the second thing I think we learn from, from Abraham in these chapters. You see, what Abraham's been learning in these chapters is that God's people are people of faith. People who trust in God and his promises. People who believe God to be trustworthy and so take him at his word. And, and this is exactly what Abraham is doing. Look, in verse 23, isn't it? Then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all those born in his house or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day as God had told him. And again in verse 26, that very day Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised and all the men of his house, those born in the house, those bought with the money from a foreigner were circumcised with him. Do do you see the point? Abraham acts on the basis of God's word. He knows that God is trustworthy and so he does what God says. So friends, who can we trust in this uncertain world? Who can we count on? Who can we trust to save us? Who can we trust our futures to? Who can we trust our children to? Who can we trust, full stop? We can trust our covenant God. And of course, as we've looked at the life of Abraham in these chapters, we've seen something, haven't we, of what the life of faith looks like. And, and it's up and down, isn't it? As, as Abraham and as we learn to trust in the promises of God. But friends, the, the big thing we see here, I think, is that the life of God's people in the world, in one sense, is really quite simple. And it's not a life of striving to earn God's promises through religion or doing good stuff. Or, because God is not like that. He's not a mean God or a disinterested God that you've got to try and persuade or manipulate or leverage you know, to earn a blessing from by, by slavish work or by religious groveling or, or, or something. No, he's a God of his word. He's a God who makes promises and then delivers on them come what may. Which means that the Christian life, the life of God's people in the world, is a life of trust in the totally trustworthy God. And and so this morning, friends, if you want to begin the Christian life, and, and if you want to share in the future that he promises to you, the, the future he died to give you, there is only one thing you need to do. You need to place your trust in him and in his word. You need to trust his gospel to rescue you. You need to trust him and so make him your Lord and your king. And and if we're already Christians, but maybe we're just struggling to keep going in the Christian life. Friends, it's the same. We, We enter the Christian life and we keep going in the Christian life, by trusting in the totally trustworthy God and the promises of his word. Who can we trust? We can trust our covenant God. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we thank you so much for for these these precious chapters of your word. and for showing us through, through Abraham what it means to enter and to live the Christian life. That it's a life of trusting 
in the totally trustworthy God. Uh, Please help us to reflect on these chapters, maybe in the days and the weeks to come. Please help us to examine our hearts in the light of them. Help us to ask ourselves, in what or whom is my trust really placed? And then would you please lead us to wholehearted trust in the trustworthy God that we have met in these chapters. And we pray this for your glory and in Jesus' name.